chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I cannot address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, what are, you, are you not mere human beings? What is, after all, what, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labor. For we are all fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Well, thank you, Rebecca. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Madish. I'm here my welcome to Jeremy's. It's really great to be encouraged by you all and to be able to encourage you as well. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open to that passage and follow along with me as we go. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we listen to your words, teach us wisdom, expose our hearts, and build us up through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I think we live in a culture that is preoccupied with success, a personal success, the success of others. We see it in businesses and nations and movements, and when we see it there, we attribute it to remarkable individuals. They become our heroes. We look at Apple, and we put its success down to Steve Jobs, Amazon's to Jeff Bezos. We think of the Allied victory at the end of World War II, 
and we put it down to Winston Churchill's outstanding leadership of Great Britain. At the end of segregation in the US to Martin Luther King Jr. The end of apartheid in South Africa to Nelson Mandela. Now we just have to pause for a few seconds to realize that we are inadvertently playing down thousands of gifted, hardworking people around these who made their success possible. Now that's the wisdom of the world. The assumption that great leaders accomplish great things. It seems obvious, and so we're happy to idolize them. Now that's not unusual. That's what people do. It's what the Corinthians did. The church in Corinth had been richly blessed by God, gifted in every way, lacking nothing. God had freely given them his spirit. He was at work among them. But they were a divided church. They had split into all sorts of different factions, each focused on the amazing qualities of their preferred leader. They had become preoccupied with what the world considered wise and powerful. Now Paul has been showing us in these early chapters of the book uh, how that just doesn't fit with the message of the cross. He says in chapter 2 verse 6, the apostles speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age, not the wisdom of this world. The mature are able to recognize that through the cross, God saves. It may look weak, it may look foolish, but it's God's wisdom and God's power. And then you get to chapter 3, and in almost the same breath, Paul calls them babies. He's bluntly challenging them. You claim to be wise. You claim to be mature, to be these spiritual giants. And in one sense, you are. But in other ways, you're behaving like babies. What you're doing just reflects the wisdom of the world, which is human folly. Follow it with me in chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I couldn't address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. You're still not ready. You're still worldly. Since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, aren't you worldly? When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, aren't you just acting like everybody else? In other words, he's saying, you've got it all wrong. You are focused on human leaders, on gifts, on what looks impressive. I wonder who it is for you. Who are the leaders you love? What are the gifts you admire? Is it the John Stotts and Dick Lucases of the years gone by? Is it the current crop of local evangelical leaders, the William Taylors and Vaughan Roberts? Is it the Don Carsons, who are great expositors? Tim Kellers, who, who are really gifted at engaging culture? Wise pastors like Ray Ortland? Or is it the, the more powerful 
expressive speakers, T.D. Jakes, or Pastor Chris, or Cash Luna. Who is it? Who do you follow online? You see, we, just like these Corinthians, need to turn again to the message of the cross and realize where leaders fit. We'll see that they're just laborers who are put in charge to care for what God treasures, his people. And so first, see that true leaders are servants. It's there in verse 5. What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants. The controlling metaphor here is that of a field of crops. God cares for the crop. He wants it to grow. He wants it to bear fruit. Paul, Apollos, Peter, they are just farm workers. That's what leaders in the church are. Laborers who till the soil, plant the seed, water the field. The owner isn't focused on them. He's focused on the crop. And here's the key thing. What makes the crop grow? Yeah, the, the seed needs to be sown. The field needs to be watered. But what makes the crop grow? It's there in verse 6. I, Paul, planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. It's neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. It's obvious when you say it, isn't it? God grows the church, not any human leader. And so if human leaders are just servants, if they are farm workers, and God is doing the impressive work, why are we so hung up on them? That's what you would expect in the world, in our workplaces, in online gossip columns. But it is out of place in the church, where the cross puts the focus on Jesus Christ. Not the servants who tend the field. There is no place here for egos or for making a name for ourselves. Instead, leaders work alongside each other for the same purpose. Verse 8, the one who plants and the, the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labor. For we are fellow workers in God's service. There, there isn't one farmhand who is more important than another. Each has work to do. Side by side, they look after the field with the same goal, to produce a good harvest. Now for leaders, that eliminates any sense of competition or one-upmanship among us. We're in it together. A church isn't a particular minister's church. It's Jesus' church. A small group isn't a particular leader's group. It's Jesus' church. For all of us, it eliminates pride in anyone's abilities or charisma 
or gifts. We belong to God, and He's the one who brings growth. This just shifts our focus on to Him. Well, the metaphor transitions here from a field to a building. That's the end of verse 9. And now the emphasis is that wise leaders build on Jesus Christ. It's there in verse 10. By the grace God has given me, do you see again how the focus is on God? I, Paul, laid a foundation as a wise builder. Someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now Paul is actually describing himself here as a skilled master builder. He's gifted, he's been trained. He's not casual about the work. He's carefully applying himself to the task. But still, he doesn't get the credit. The focus isn't on the builder or the foreman or the architect. It's on the foundation of the building, which is Jesus Christ. I think of some of the beautiful buildings in our city. St. Paul's Cathedral, for example. We don't go there and think to ourselves as, we, as we're standing and looking at some part of it, wow, that Charlie who laid this brick, isn't he amazing? Well, you might if you're Charlie's mum. We do tend to make a bigger deal about the architect who envisioned the whole building. That is still worldly wisdom, focusing on one gifted individual. The wisdom of the cross does something different. It shifts our attention away from remarkable people and onto the foundation of God's building, Jesus Christ. It's a completely different way of seeing. Jesus Christ is the foundation on which the church is built. Apart from who he is, God's son, the second person of the Trinity, the one who took on flesh and lived as a man so he could be the perfect mediator between God and humanity. Apart from his death on the cross, which bears God's anger against sin and makes possible the offer of righteousness for sinners like us. Apart from his resurrection, which gives us new life and offers us the hope of a future with God, living as his people. Apart from all of that, we have nothing. Jesus Christ is the foundation on which this church is built. And Paul? Paul is just one of many laborers who've helped to construct some part of the building. There's a warning here for us that the way we build on this foundation, the materials we use, really matters. There's a call here to use quality materials. Now from the context, from the first couple of chapters from here, we know clearly what Paul means by that. To use quality materials is to teach and shepherd with the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
The message of the cross is God's wisdom, it's God's power to rescue people and to build his church. That's what we preach at Trinity Church. That's why every time that we gather, we gather around the apostolic gospel witnessed to in the Bible. Because it is only this gospel that will bear eternal fruit. Without the message of Christ crucified, we may draw people together, we may entertain, we may look busy, do some nice things, but we won't have called people to put their trust in the Savior and turn from sin. We may do those things well. We may meet felt needs with soothing words and experiences. We may even be seen as respectable or reasonable in the local community. But being faithful to God means that we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We are willing to appear as fools because we build with the gospel of Christ crucified. Well, this passage goes on. What we build with will be exposed in the future. Verse 13. The day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. God will judge the quality of our work and he will reward us accordingly. If we've done the work well, we'll be rewarded. That's an idea that's come up in verse 8 and it comes up again here in verse 14. That's a motivation for us to serve faithfully, to be diligent. But if we've done a poor job, if we've used, if we've used substandard materials, in other words, if we've relied on anything other than the message of the cross to grow the church, we will suffer loss. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to realize that wood, hay, and straw won't survive a fire. We're left here with a striking image of a shamed worker trying to crawl out of a smoldering ruin as they escape the flames. God will hold us to account. He may graciously spare the negligent, but verse 17, he will destroy wicked leaders who harm his church. So do you, do you, do you see what's at stake, both for leaders and for the church? If leaders fail to teach and shepherd God's people with the gospel of Christ crucified, Christians won't grow to maturity. Non-Christians won't be forgiven or restored to God. Instead, they, like harmful leaders, will be consumed on the day of God's judgment. See, if our focus is on the here and now, what the world thinks is wise, what the world thinks looks impressive, instead of God's eternal purposes, then we will think of the cross as foolish and shameful. And we will give up preaching Christ crucified. The message that we then proclaim will be no gospel at all. It will produce nothing 
that will last on into eternity. So like the Corinthians who received this, we need to keep that in perspective. And Paul encourages them to do that by reminding them of the privilege they have, the privilege we have as those who belong to God. Leaders may be servants, farmhands, builders, but we, the church, are God's treasure. Look at how he puts it in verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? Now that phrase, don't you know, is one that Paul uses 10 times in this letter. Each time he does it, to humble the Corinthians because they so prided themselves on their knowledge. They think they're wise. They think they know it all, but they've become fools. Paul wants us to know that we are God's building. We are God's temple in which he lives. In the Old Testament, God's temple was where he was by his spirit. It's where his rule extended to the ends of the earth from. Now, God lives in his people through that same spirit. He gives his spirit to every believer. The, the you here is plural. It's describing the whole church as God's temple. Do you see what that means? If the church is God's temple, and to be clear, we're talking about people here, not physical buildings. If the church is God's temple, how you treat the church, how you treat each other, has the most serious consequences. To harm God's home is no joke. God will destroy that person. And so, as we look at ourselves in the mirror, as we look at other churches around us, there are all kinds of churches that can look impressive, knowledgeable, popular, deeply spiritual even. But remember this, if they are not built using materials that last, the gospel of Jesus crucified, then they will be consumed in judgment when Jesus returns. Like the Corinthians, we sometimes desire and even demand services, priorities, programs, leaders that look attractive to the world. Whether that's intellectual prestige or dynamic power, whether that's being trendy or having laid-back community, we must pause and ask whether we are being driven by the world's ideas of what is wise and powerful or by a cross-centered message. Successful ministry is what bears eternal fruit. It's not necessarily what looks impressive right now. Well, the Corinthians mistakenly believe that what appears wise and powerful in the world will also make God's people wise and powerful. As verse 18 says, they're deceiving themselves. A desire to appear wise in this age will lead to focusing on impressive leaders. 
it will lead to ditching the gospel for alternatives because the gospel and gospel-centered ministry will never look wise to the world. We need to be prepared to look foolish this side of Jesus' return. We must be prepared to hold to the foolish message of the cross if we want to be a church that is built on God's true wisdom. The Corinthian preoccupation with wise and powerful leaders was just a symptom of their worldliness. Paul, Apollos, Peter, they are just servants. And so verse 21, no more boasting about human leaders. See how the image works? They're just a bunch of construction workers. Stop focusing on them. Look at the building. Look at the foundation. Rather than us lining up behind them, the logic flips on its head. Leaders belong to the church. We are here as your servants. Do you remember our extravagant gift-giving God? We've been talking about him from chapter 1. He supplies us with everything that is good for us. Leaders, life, death, the present, the future, these are all gifts that he gives us to work for our glory. These things belong to God, and because through Christ we belong to God, all things belong to us. There is nothing we lack. And so we don't need to chase after the world, what the world chases, because in Christ we already have it all. We can be secure, we can be confident. We have a generous God. And many of you will know that we're looking for a new senior minister. And so you might look at Jeremy and Dawn with great fondness, but also a tinge of sorrow. There'll have been many times that you've sat under Jeremy's teaching and you were challenged and built up. There have been times that uh, Jeremy and Dawn were by your side in a time of need, and they had exactly the right words for your situation. But if we misunderstand the place of leaders, we'll think that they are the ones who have blessed us. They haven't. Jeremy hasn't. He's just the messenger. God is the generous gift giver. You see, if you, if you think it's Jeremy, you'll be chatting with a friend sometime who is really battling with something and you'll want to help them. And you'll be left, left thinking, do you know what I need here? I need Jeremy Hobson. Or you'll have a friend who asks you one day to tell you what this whole Christianity thing is about. And you'll be left thinking, you know what I need here? I need a Tim Keller sermon. Or someone will ask you to teach the Bible to our kids. And you'll think, look, I'm not great with kids like Chris Huntley. I haven't been trained like Kirsten. And you just won't do it. See, that kind of misunderstanding pulls the church apart. We end up lining up behind leaders instead of functioning the way God intended. Each of us is part of the building. 
Now, Paul is going to flesh this out explicitly later on in 1 Corinthians. He'll, he'll shift from this metaphor of a building to yet another one of a body. For now, just realize that each of us has been generously gifted by God and is indispensable to the rest of the building. It's not about gifted leaders. Kirsten talked about serving teams earlier. Now, some of those teams help our Sunday gatherings work better. It's kind of like with a family meal. Someone cooks dinner, someone sets the table, someone washes up afterwards. But that's a tiny part of family life. It needs to happen. But if that is all that happened, we would be a pretty dysfunctional family. You see, we, we serve each other in a multitude of ways. Most of that isn't formal. And most of that, no one has to say, hey, go and do this. You notice a spill and you wipe it up. You notice something needs to be done and you go and do it. The decisions we make about where we spend our time, the words that we speak to each other, the kind of work that we do much of the week, our attitudes. See, all of that is shaped by this commitment to the building or the body. Serving each other, using our gifts, is just a way of life. It's part of how we live. So join a team. If you're not part of a team, join a team. It's a good thing to do. It'll help the rest of us. But that's not the main thing. Realize that that is just a tiny, tiny part of your commitment to God's people. It's a tiny part of who we are as the temple in which God lives. Isn't that something precious? Isn't that wonderful? So let us care for each other like that. Let us care for each other as a, a home that is built on Christ, where God now lives. Here's a final encouragement. You've probably heard of Charles Spurgeon. From a human perspective, he was probably one of the greatest preachers that this country has ever known. And that's saying something. But do you know where it all started? It was January 6th, 1850, and it was a very snowy day in Colchester. Charles Spurgeon was a spiritually lost 15-year-old. But that morning, he had somehow decided that he needed to go to church, but he couldn't get to the church that he normally went to because of the snow. Instead, he found a small church close to his home, there were just a handful of people there. Uh, because of the snow, that day even the minister couldn't make it. So when it came time for the sermon, a member of the congregation stepped out, because you can't go without a sermon. Now he was a poor, uneducated man, a, a shoemaker or a tailor. He opened the Bible text that was set for that morning, Isaiah 45 verse 22, and he read, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Now apparently he didn't even pronounce the words correctly, but he began to speak. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a great deal of effort. 
It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. A man need not have been to college to look. He may be the biggest fool, and yet he can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. And that is what the text says. And as that ordinary, uneducated man continued, that is the day God chose to open the eyes of the 15-year-old Charles through the ministry of a simple man. Let's never doubt that God can use each one of us. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task.